the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. God knows us before we are born. He might say, well, Pastor G, I'm not King Cyrus and I'm not Jeremiah the prophet. So, you know, I don't know how this applies to me. Understand this. God has a purpose and a plan for every single one of you because he knows you before you were even born, before you were even knit together in your mother's womb. So therefore, we need to seek him, know him, find out what that is and obey him because God knows us even before we're born. Notice, if you will, the providential hand of God. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Ezra. Why am I here? If you've ever asked yourself this question, let God answer it. Not only does He have a specific purpose for your life, but He's been planning it long before you were born. In today's message, Pastor Gary teaches how a pagan king found out that his purpose was to provide a way for the Jewish nation to rebuild the temple of God. This king was named in a prophecy over a hundred years old. God knows you and wants to work through you too. Right there where you work and live. Let God provide for others through you. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Ezra, chapter 1, for today's message titled, The Providence of God. We're in the book of Ezra. Let's take our Bibles and go to the book of Ezra. We're going to be in chapter 1. Let me give a quick intro and then we'll read from chapter 1 and then dig it deeper. For those of you who like to take notes, I'm going to go too quickly for you to be able to take notes on a couple of these. So here's what we know about Ezra the man. A few bullet points about Ezra the man. He was among the exiles who returned to Jerusalem from Babylon. He is believed to be the author of First and Second Chronicles and this book, Ezra, that bears his name and the succeeding book, Nehemiah. Ezra in Hebrew translates his name basically means help or the helper. And he is listed in Scripture as both a scribe and a priest. A scribe was one who was diligent in transcribing the word of the Lord. So listed as a scribe and a priest. This much we know about Ezra the book. The book of Ezra records the return of the Jewish exiles to Jerusalem following their 70-year captivity in Babylon. And it's also about the rebuilding of their lives and the temple. And the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, Ezra and then the book that follows Nehemiah, were originally one scroll in ancient Hebrew texts. And 
When we speak about the exiles and the Jews returning from Babylon to Jerusalem, what we read in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are that there were three waves of the return of the Jews. The first wave was in 538 B.C. It was led by a man by the name of Zerubbabel. 49,897 Jews returned. That's the list given in chapter 2 when you do all the math of the tribes. And that first return is covered in the first six chapters of the book of Ezra. Then there was a second wave. The second wave happened in 457 B.C. That was led by Ezra, the same guy who wrote this book that bears his name. He appears in chapter 7. The second wave happens, and we read about in chapters 7 through 10, 457 B.C., and only about 1754 return on the second wave. The third wave was in much later, 444 B.C., led by Nehemiah. It's an unknown number that wasn't documented, and that third wave is mentioned in the book of Nehemiah. So we'll get to that when we get to Nehemiah. Now, I'm excited about going through Ezra and Nehemiah for a couple of reasons. First, because Ezra is a book about new beginnings. I mean, this is a book about how some 50,000, roughly 50,000 Jews returned to Jerusalem from Babylon after 70 years of captivity there, and they're coming back to their homeland to reestablish their lives. It is a book about new beginnings. And who doesn't like a good book about new beginnings, fresh starts, second chances? That's what is happening here with the people of God in the book of Ezra. It is also a book about adventure and faith. Again, it's about 50,000 Jews who were traveling 900 miles on foot across arid desert terrain from basically Iraq to Israel, to begin lives really from scratch. They are risking everything in order to come and basically take up residency again in their homeland, 70 years later, the land that was promised on oath to their forefathers by God himself. And so this is an adventure. I mean, you're traveling 900 miles, and most of these people were born in Babylon during the seven years of captivity. They've never even seen the homeland, so they don't even know what they're going to get to. They don't know what life is going to be like. They have no idea about what it's going to require to establish their lives once again in the homeland of their fathers. So this is a great adventure and one that took much faith because they're going to trust God in this new great adventure. And then thirdly, it is also a book about rebuilding, not just rebuilding their lives, but it is a book about rebuilding the temple, the temple of the Lord, which had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar 70 years earlier and was basically a pile of rubble. These people are going to get back to Jerusalem to a pile of rubble and they're going to rebuild the temple. And then Nehemiah also says how they're going to rebuild the city. So some great books here, Ezra and Nehemiah together. Think of both of these books somewhat like a diary. It is a diary of the events related to these very brave souls who traveled 900 miles to get back to their homeland, to restart, fresh start, with nothing more basically than the shirts on their backs and raw determination. And the diary records their life and how God provided for them and took care of them all along the way. So here in chapter 1, let me read first five verses with you, and then we'll dig further. In verse 1, it says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. So you might want to note in the margin of your Bible, it's 538 B.C. 
the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. And the people of any place where survivors may now be living are to provide him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. And verse 5 says, And then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. I hope everybody understands a basic rule of interpreting the Bible and applying the Bible to your lives. And one thing that is important to note is that not every story in the Bible is intended to be an exact parallel for our lives today, okay? Not every story is an exact parallel. Let me illustrate it to you this way. So there's a part in the Bible where it speaks about how David worshipped the Lord dancing in his underwear. Okay? You don't read that and go, okay, well, David danced before the Lord in his underwear. Let's strip down and dance before the Lord in our underwear. Not here. Please don't. Okay? Please don't. It is not intended as an exact parallel. If you want to dance before the Lord in your underwear, go home. Do it in the privacy of your home. Please draw the blinds, okay? We don't want any small children to be affected by that scene. But here's the thing. It's not to be an exact parallel. But it is to be, like every book, every story in the book of the Bible, is to be a principle. There are principles all through God's Word that should speak to our lives. So, oh, David danced before the Lord in his underwear. Principle. Oh, we should enthusiastically worship the Lord and not be so stinking self-conscious about what people think in church when we lift our hands to the Lord. That's a principle. So that's just an example, all right? You don't take every story and look at it as an exact parallel. It's often a principle. And so I want us to keep that in mind as we go through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, okay? Now, a lot of people bristle at the idea of change. I'm one of them. I'm not a person who really likes change. Most of the times, people don't like change just because when something's going well, they want to hold on to it and preserve it. So a lot of people don't like change for that reason. When things are not going well, people welcome change and they even hasten it. Am I right? If something's not going well, if your job's not going well, you want to change. You know what I'm saying? So there are certain times and certain seasons when we want change and certain times we don't. So... We're going to be looking at Ezra and Nehemiah with a theme that I've entitled through these books, Ezra and Nehemiah, a theme that I've entitled, Ever-Changing, Never-Changing, okay? That's kind of the theme, Ever-Changing, Never-Changing. Now, let's go to chapter 1 of Ezra, all right? That's just the introduction. That was free. Here we go. <laughs> As you look here into Ezra chapter 1, I want you to compare it with the last chapter of 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles 36 ended on this note, that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came, besieged Jerusalem. It was the will of God and the hand of God to discipline the Jewish people. The Bible tells us clearly. Nebuchadnezzar took tens of thousands of Jews captive all the way back to Babylon and they would live there for 70 years. It was God's time out. It was his discipline to get the attention of the Jewish people that had rebelled against him. That's the way Second Chronicles ends. 
first chapter of Ezra, there's a new king on the throne. His name is Cyrus, king of Persia. History tells us, and the Bible tells us, that the Medes and the Persians conquered the Babylonian kingdom. So now the Persians are the most powerful people, and they have absorbed the Babylonian empire, and Cyrus is now the new king. Nebuchadnezzar is long gone. Seventy years have transpired. So when you effectively turn your page from Second Chronicles to Ezra, when you turn that one page, you are advancing 70 years. Second Chronicles talks about the Jews being taken off. Ezra talks about the Jews coming back. And again, as I mentioned last week, the Bible is largely silent about those 70 years of captivity for the Jewish people in Babylon. We just don't have a lot of details about it. All of a sudden now, they were taken captive at the end of Second Chronicles. They're coming home in the first chapter of Ezra. So 70 years have transpired here. And one of the things, or actually two of the things that God has done, one single theme, but He did it in two ways. In the process of causing them to be exiled, to discipline them, God accomplished one major thing in two ways. He purged them. He purged and cleansed their hearts of two things. First was the monarchy. The people of Israel governed themselves for 400 years with a king. And the reason they governed themselves with a king is not because it was the will of God. God's intent for the people was not that they should govern themselves with a king. The intent was that God should always be king. The reason why they opted for one of themselves to always be a king is because they just didn't want God to be king. And so God allowed them for 400 years to kind of self-govern under a monarchy with a king on the throne. And that didn't work out so well. When they go off to Babylon, they'll get purged of the idea of a monarchy, and they're going to come back with a renewed desire for God to be king. God basically says, I want you to see what it's like to be under the rulership of an unjust, ungodly king. And when you get a taste of that, you're going to really cry out for me. Can anybody relate about being under an unjust, ungodly king? Anyway, let's move on. But here's the idea. Here's the idea. Hold on. Here's the idea. The idea is you're going to have a greater hunger and thirst for a true and living God when you don't appreciate who's in power. And when the people of God saw who was in power in Babylon, they had a hunger and thirst for righteousness, and they came back to Israel, never again submitted to a king. The monarchy was gone. What's the form of government in Israel today? It's not a monarchy. It's a democracy. They have a president, they have a prime minister. Never again will they have a king. The other thing that he purged them of was idolatry. Idolatry. The people of Israel engage in idolatry and worship false images and idols of the pagan nations around them, and God took them to Babylon and purged them of that as well. When they come back to Jerusalem, they will never again be steeped in idolatry. Never again. Today, when you look at Israel, do they worship the Asherah pole? No. They're not people of idolatry anymore. God purged them of these things. Let me tell you something. The very reason why they experimented for a season with a monarchy and idolatry is for one basic reason, because they were imitating the pagan people around them. That's it. They wanted a king because the other nations had kings. They wanted to worship idols because the pagan nations around them had idols. Let me tell you something. When we get ourselves in trouble, a lot of times it's because we're simply trying to imitate the pagan practices of the world around us. That's when we get in trouble. And what did God do for the people of Israel whom he loved? He spanked them. He disciplined them. We get ourselves in trouble when we just want to live our lives to imitate our world instead of being distinct and being our own people for the glory of God who want to live for his glory. And so sometimes we go through discipline as well. 
And when the people had been purged of the monarchy and idolatry, and the 70 years that God had predetermined were fulfilled, then God brought them back. And how did he bring them back? The Bible says right there in Ezra 1, verse 1, he moved the heart of Cyrus the king. He moved the heart of Cyrus the king. Now, I'm one of these people that I analyze everything very practically. So I ask myself, and you might wonder, how did God move the heart of the king so that Cyrus, this pagan Persian guy, would let the Jews freely go back to their homeland? I'll tell you how he did it. Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, who prophesied, now check this out, 150 years before Cyrus was even born, This is one great example of how you know, is the Bible reliable? Is the Bible true? Okay. Historically, we know Isaiah lived and prophesied 150 years before Cyrus was even born. And yet, three times in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah mentions this unborn guy named Cyrus by name three times as a guy who will deliver some future time when the Jews will be in exile in a foreign land. Isn't that amazing? 150 years before Cyrus was even born. Now, Cyrus is a pagan king. What does he know about Isaiah the prophet? This is how it is believed he came to know what Isaiah the prophet had written. Daniel was a Jew who was taken captive all the way to Babylon. The Bible says he served in the court of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And the Bible in the book of Daniel also says that when Nebuchadnezzar was deposed and Cyrus became the new king, Cyrus retained Daniel in the palace of the king. And Daniel tells us he served Cyrus just like he served Nebuchadnezzar. Now this is the part that we don't know for sure, but Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, says that Daniel read to Cyrus the prophecy of the book of Isaiah. And I'm going to read you real quickly the verses, and I'm just going to reference the first two, and I'll quote the last one. Isaiah 44, 28 quotes Cyrus' name. Isaiah 45, 1 quotes Cyrus by name. And then this one, Isaiah 45, 13. God says, I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free. 150 years before this guy was born, God, by name, mentions him through the prophet Isaiah. Now imagine that you're Cyrus, okay? And Daniel comes along and he says, King Cyrus, I don't know if you know this, but your name is written in a book I have. It is? Why, yes, it is. And you may not know this, but it was written 150 years before you were even born. It was? Yes, it was. And in fact, let me read some verses to you because it says that God has chosen you, you, King Cyrus, to let the Jewish people go back to their homeland. He has, he has. No way. Yahweh. (laughs) Yahweh. Now, you have to imagine this. I mean, if if anybody came up to you today and said, I want to read something to you that was written 150 years before you were born, and God has a plan and purpose for you, and the history of events of humanity, you'd sit there and you'd go, this is pretty incredible. This is pretty awesome. And that's the way Cyrus was. And he responds to this. That's why he asserts so confidently in verse 2 of Ezra 1 that God has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he also adds, and God has appointed me to build a temple for him in Jerusalem. Why? Because he's been reading the book. He knows what has been written of him. 
that God knew him even before he was born. Now, here's a takeaway for us in our personal lives. This speaks to me. This one thing speaks to me today, and it's going to be just one point we're going to have today, okay? We're going to make a list as we go through the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, but here's the one point that speaks to me. God has a providential plan for our lives, okay? This is not unique what he did with Cyrus. I mean, it is unique in the sense that he's king and he was used to pronounce this edict, okay? But it is not unique that God knows us before we are born. Because even Jeremiah said so, the word of the Lord to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1.5, which says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. God knows us before we are born. You might say, well, Pastor G, I'm not King Cyrus and I'm not Jeremiah the prophet. So, you know, I don't know how this applies to me. Understand this. God has a purpose and a plan for every single one of you. Because he knows you before you were even born. Before you were even knit together in your mother's womb. So therefore, we need to seek him, know him, find out what that is and obey him. Because God knows us even before we're born. Notice, if you will, the providential hand of God in this whole story. God moves the heart of a pagan king. God orchestrates these things for Persia to overtake Babylon. God puts it on this king's heart to send the Jews back. This is the providential hand of God at work. And God's providential hand is at work in your life. You can't necessarily see it. You know, I've said this before. We need to understand God kind of figuratively as if he has two hands. His visible hand is his hand of miracles. His invisible hand is the hand of providence, where God is orchestrating things in your life and in my life behind the scenes to accomplish his good purposes. And the same is true not just for our lives, but also for our church. When I read this and I see, man, the God is so providential here, it causes me to realize the same reality for us. Listen, some people have a very passive view of God. Their view of God is that he kind of created the universe, if they even believe that, he created the universe, and then he kind of treated the universe like a clock that he wound up, and then he just kind of took his hands off, sits back, and watches everything play out like the clock unwinding, okay? That's a very passive view of God. That's not the way I see God in the Bible. You look at verses like Psalm 8, verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Because he does. The psalmist is like, I'm amazed that you care about the details of my life. In Daniel 2, 21, it says, God changes seasons and times. He sets up kings and he deposes kings. God is even involved in government in that way. In Matthew 10, 29, it says, Not a single sparrow falls to the ground apart from the will of God. In Psalm 147, verse 4, it says that God determines the stars in the universe and calls them all by name. Okay? That's an involved God. All right? Scientists estimate 10 trillion galaxies in the universe. 10 trillion galaxies. And the estimate is 100 billion stars in every galaxy. That's 100 billion times 10 trillion. I wasn't very good in math. But that's one with a lot of zeros, okay? And God named them all. That is a God who's very concerned about the details of our lives and of the universe, okay? So he has a plan for you. And we need to recognize the providential ways that God has been at work for his glory. 
And that's where we're heading now. Throughout this Old Testament book, Ezra reminds the Israelites that they are God's people and that God has not forgotten them. We hope that listening to Cornerstone Connection also reminds you that God has not forgotten you and that you belong to Him. If you'd like to learn more about Cornerstone Connection or hear more teachings by Pastor Gary, we have a few ways to do that. One way is downloading our mobile app, or you can subscribe to the Cornerstone Connection podcast. If you look online at cornerstoneconnection.cc, you'll also find additional messages as well as companion resources that offer a deeper look into Pastor Gary's studies. You mean a lot to us here at Cornerstone Connection, and we'd love to hear from you. Our number is 703-771-1500. That's 703-771-1500. Cornerstone Connection comes to you as a ministry of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. We'd love to meet you in person, so come see us Sundays at 8.30, 10, or 11.45 a.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. for our time of worship, Bible study, and fellowship. Find out more at cornerstoneconnection.cc. That's all for today, but join us again for more from God's Word right here on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know You're not alone Real love is calling Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.